So now let me ask you guys a question. Did you ever look at those uh, either online or in the newspaper, those things that show today in history, sections that writers see online? I love those things. I love to check those out. Well, if you've looked at one lately, you'd see that 463 years ago this past week on September 22nd in the year 1554, the Spanish explorer Francisco Coronado, who was already suffering from severe injuries and the stress and the, the toll of almost two decades of travel, he died at the age of 34. Pretty young guy. He had, like most Spanish explorers, come to North America looking for what they call the three G's, God, glory, and gold, and not necessarily in that order. And he began his journey 19 years earlier in 1535, traveling north from Mexico City into what is now the southwestern United States, leading a force of 300 Spaniards and 800 indigenous Indians in search of the fabled seven cities of gold, cities that were rumored to have walls made of that precious material and treasure houses that were just absolutely filled with priceless gems. And he finally arrived in the region that now kind of straddles the border between New Mexico and Arizona, Coronado and his conquistadors came upon a walled city just like they'd hoped. And after a, a very brief battle with the native defenders, they entered the city, got into the fortification only to discover that they had conquered just a modest Zuni Indian village. A village that was built with walls of adobe mud and not gold. A village whose streets were paved with sun-baked clay and not silver. And whose storehouses were full, but they were filled with everyday items and not precious jewels. That didn't slow him down, though, because undaunted, he continued to travel. He traveled through Texas. He traveled through Oklahoma. He traveled through Kansas. But he never found those fabled cities of gold that he sought for. And he finally returned to Mexico City, where he faced a colonial government, furious with him that he didn't bring back the treasures and the wealth that he had promised. And, you know, he died believing that he had been a shameful failure in spite of the fact that he had a loving wife and eight children, in spite of the fact that he had been born into one of the wealthiest families in Spain, in spite of the fact that he was a one-time regional governor of that area, and among other things is credited as having discovered the Grand Canyon. Right? Unbelievable. He still thought he was a failure. And if, if you think of it, it's incredible because he had more and had done more than a vast majority of the people of his day or even people of our day, if you think about it. He still felt like a failure. It wasn't enough. He was always looking for that, that next big thing. And, you know, in varying degrees, we're all that way, aren't we? I mean, everybody's searching for something, right? We're, we're all born hungry. We're all wired with, with appetites. We just naturally long for satisfaction despite the fact that it's something that our material world is never going to give us. But, you know, somehow that doesn't stop people from looking for it, does it? Some people search for pleasure. Some people search for possessions or some for position and power. And other people look for popularity, but, you know, most folks are never truly satisfied. In fact, one of our congregational forefathers from the mid-1700s, a man by the name of James Beekle, he wrote about this kind of condition. He said, Though I could trace my pedigree through illustrious heroes and renowned kings back to the first founding of nations, this would not furnish my soul with all it would desire. 
though I had the knowledge of all educated men summed up in myself, so that the wisest philosophers might come and learn at my feet, still my desire would not have its void fulfilled. Though I had all the magnificent titles, honorary appellations, and grand distinctions, even these would not fill the extensive blank. Still my desires would be making new demands. He said, should the earth burst open all her silver veins and gold mines to enrich my treasures, though my throne were of one pearl and my crown of one diamond, though my guards were kings and my menial servants princes and my immediate servants nobles, though the daily guests at my table were thousands and ten thousands of honorable personages, though my fountain should flow with oil, the river stream with wine, the forest drop with honey, yet my heart would not say it is enough. Pretty telling statement, isn't it? Now let me tell you the story of another guy, a man who lived almost two centuries after Coronado. Now, this was a guy who, who actually couldn't keep a job. He worked as a Lutheran church organist, and, and he was a good one. He was a great one, in fact, but the trouble was he was also a composer. And the pieces that he composed were considered too showy and over the top to be played in a public worship setting. So eventually the local pastors that hired him would grumble and he would have to move on and was no doubt forgotten by the congregations that had let him go. But you know what history didn't forget him? His name was Johann Sebastian Bach. Maybe you recognize him, right? Once when one of the pastors at one of the churches that fired him was kind of relaying the congregation's concerns about his original scores, he responded by saying, the main purpose of my music is to glorify God. Some people do it with music that is simple. I have not chosen a simple style, but my music comes from my heart as a humble offering to God. You know, and in fact, for, for you musicians, for Dee and, and John, you probably have seen this. If you look at a sample of one of Bach's compositions, you'll notice at the bottom, many of them, he's written this Latin phrase at the end of the score that says, soli Dio gloria, to the glory of God alone. The glory of God alone. That was his overarching motivation for God to have the glory alone, whether he received any personally or not. And those kind of competing ideas between those two stories, those two men, and the contrast between man seeking his own glory and seeking to bring glory to God is what we're going to be looking at today in the 11th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. So we're going to look at Romans 11, beginning in verse 25. So here now the words of the true and living God. Paul writes, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will only last until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. As the scripture says, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem, and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news, and this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loved, because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Oh, how great, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything, everything comes from him 
and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. And Paul wrote, Amen. So Paul starts out today by saying, I don't want you to make the same mistakes that the Israelites did. I don't want you to, to become proud. I want you to remember that salvation is from God. It's his idea. It's his plan. It's accomplished by his works, and that we should, as, as one author said, make sure that it's God's trumpet that you're blowing, because if it's only yours, you won't wake the dead. You'll just disturb the neighbor. And, and Paul made a great example of that today because he closed out the reading with this great little hymn of praise. And, and let, let's re read it together with me. For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. It almost reminds you of the glory be to the Father that, that Dee plays for us to sing after the offering, right? A little bit like that. Because in the liturgy, we call that the doxology. And we sing it after the offering to remind us that it is God who provides for all of our needs, for our, our physical needs and our material needs and our spiritual needs. And that he gets all the glory and the praise from that. In fact, another commentator said, all good theology leads to doxology so that our response should be wow and wonder and worship. I love that quote. All good theology leads to doxology. Right? Doesn't that sound like a great way to live? Right? To, to live a life of wow and, and wonder and worship instead of living a life jaded and, and depressed and spiritually dead. It almost re reminds me of a, a motivational seminar that, that Vicky was telling me about where, where three particular men were invited to come up on the stage, and they were all asked, when, when you're in your casket and your family is mourning over you and your friends are coming to say goodbye, and remembering your accomplishments, what would you like to hear them say about you? The first guy said, well, I'd love to hear them say that I was one of the greatest doctors of my time and a really great family man. The second guy said, at my funeral, I'd like to hear that I was a wonderful husband and an inspiring teacher who had a huge difference on the children of tomorrow. The last guy came up and he replied, well, all of those are really great answers, guys, but I'd like to hear my family say, look, he's moving. It's a miracle. But you see the difference in those three guys, right? See, there's <laughs> a big difference, right? Two of them looked only at what they had done. But the last guy, he had to depend on what only God could do. And that was a miracle. So who gets the glory? Well, what does that even mean anyway? What does it mean to give God glory? And what did Paul mean that everything is intended for God's glory? Well, if we go back to that scripture that we just read together, and if you're a person like, like Brother Ray that likes to mark your Bible, this is a great one to highlight or mark out in your Bible. And I'm going to have you read it again because this is really foundational to our thinking. So read this again with me. For everything right, comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. And the opening words there give us our first clue because we glorify God when we acknowledge that all things originate with him. Because God is firstly the creator. And, you know, sometimes I'll have a chance to share my faith and I'll be in conversation with someone and the topic of creation comes up. And the person that I'm talking to will say something to the effect of how much faith it requires for me to believe in God creating the universe. 
And then they'll begin to, to educate me on how they believe the world was actually created, meaning it was a combination of, of time and, and matter and chance. And then they'll begin to school me on how they believe that billions of years ago, out of nothing, that things just appeared. And from those things that appeared out of that nothing, that the earth was created, and then eventually that we evolved from single-cell protoplasm into what we are today. In fact, one, uh, one creationist columnist uh, kind of rewrote the atheist creation story like this. I, I want to share this with you, what he wrote. This is the atheist creation story. It goes, once upon a point of infinite density, nothing that was something went boom, and then by time and chance there was everything. And that everything eventually named that something matter. But because of the ravages of time and chance that everything that was something will once again be nothing upon a point of infinite nothingness with no time for chance to matter anymore. Pretty crazy when you think it out like that, isn't it? But folks believe it. I think I'll stick with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Even the famous atheist Voltaire said, the existence of the world embarrasses me, and I cannot dream that the world exists without a maker. I cannot dream that it exists without a maker. And brothers and sisters, that maker is God. You see, we give glory to God when we stand in awe of creation, realizing that it came from the hand of God, that creation is his intelligent design, and it didn't just happen. In fact, we read in John 1, beginning in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Pretty plain, isn't it? And if you continue to read there, you discover that that living word is Jesus. In fact, Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, there is one God the Father by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things were created and through whom. You've got it all right there. By whom, for whom, and through whom. In more modern history, there was the, the, eighth, the uh, scientist Sir Isaac Newton. You guys know him, right? Remember the apple falling, gravity, that whole story? This is what he wrote. He said, the most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. This being governs all things as Lord over all, and on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called Lord God, universal ruler, infinite, and absolutely perfect. But you see, the secular world doesn't recognize that, do they? They look at the material world, and all they see is the material. We look at the material world, and we see the handiwork of the maker. And Newton went on to say that God didn't just create the world and turn his back on it. He sustains it. He maintains it. And we know that's true. We know that that's true. We know from observation that if the earth was much further from the sun, it would be too cold to support life. If it was much closer, it would be too hot. If you tilt it even one degree out of balance on either, either side, beyond its limits, the earth wouldn't be habitable for life. And yet it continues to be right where it's supposed to be and turn as it's supposed to turn. And when things do go awry, as we know they sometimes do in this fallen world, we all know that they do, we need to remind ourselves that God is there and that God cares about the cosmic issues and about our private ones that only we know. In fact, 
Jesus reminded his followers of that over 2,000 years ago when he said in Matthew 10, what's the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. So we have to remember there that it's God and God alone who does the sustaining and the looking after, not man. But another commentator said, some men are proud and insolent because they ride a fine horse, wear a feather in their hat, or are dressed in a fine suit of clothes. But who does not see the folly in all of this? If there be any glory in such things, the glory belongs to the horse and the bird and the tailor. So how much more does our glory rightly belong to God? Because we not only glorify God when we acknowledge that all things are from him, but that all things are created for him. Over and over again, the New Testament writers return to the theme that as Christ's followers, we're no longer merely creatures, but we're God's new creation. For him, the old is gone, the new life has come. And with that new life comes the responsibility of new behavior. We need to be, as we talk about in Sunday school so often, be bearing fruit for the kingdom. And in doing that, when our lives reflect Christ and his teachings, it brings glory to God. In another of his letters, the apostle Paul wrote, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So if you teach, you take care of a house, if you repair cars, if you sell shoes, do it for the glory of God. Don't look for people to acknowledge your accomplishments or your efforts. Don't don't wait around for someone to write a nice eulogy about you. Let them see you living for Christ right now. Don't be spiritually dead, but let people look at you and say, hey, look, he's moving. He's moving in and for the glory and the will of God no matter what we do. There's a quote that's kind of loosely attributed to, to Martin Luther. He said, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean clothes. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. If a man is a Christian tailor, he should say, I make these clothes because God has bidden me do so, so I can earn a living and so that I can help and serve my neighbors. I like that quote. You know, and don't think that just because you might be retired that you're off the hook. I've heard Dr. Buddy say probably a hundred times from the pulpit when he was preaching that you can read this book from cover to cover and you're not going to find anything about retiring from the kingdom of God, right? See, these might be your retirement years, but don't retire from serving in some capacity. Make these years a new beginning now that you have all this free time on your hands. You could work on a committee. You could volunteer as a greeter. You can be an usher. And if you can't do any of those things physically, there's always a need for prayer warriors. You could commit to praying through our prayer list every week. I won't even ask you to do it every day, but pray through your prayer list every week. In fact, several people have told me today that they prayed for me, and I covet your prayers. That means a lot. And you know, on top of all that, the one thing that all of us can do, no matter who we are or where we are, the one thing all of us can do is to demonstrate the love of Christ in our homes, in our parks, and as you go around this town. 
We can all do that. Jesus said in John 13, 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. And when the world sees that, it brings glory to God. And the point here is, if you are a Christ follower, then God expects that when people talk about our life and about our livelihood, it's going to bring glory to him. And that's a choice. And that's a choice only you can make. If you're a Christ follower, then God expects when people talk about our attitudes and our words, that our attitudes and words will bring glory to him. And that's a choice. That's a choice that only you can make. And if you're a Christ follower, God expects that when people see how you trust him in the face of whatever circumstances life might put in your way, that your trust will bring glory to him. And that's a choice. That's a choice that only you can make. And each of those are grounded and rooted not in our own ability, but only in the foundation that we have laid in Jesus Christ. Which brings me to the, the third and final way that we can bring glory to God, and that is by sharing your testimony. Even though statistics show that very few people do. Because the truth is most people would rather go skydiving with an umbrella or shark hunting with a Swiss Army knife than stand in front of a group of people and talk about their faith. Right? But very few things bring glory to God as when you share how Jesus Christ has done a work in you. Salvation is God's work. You didn't participate in it. You didn't save yourself. You couldn't. The Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what can dead people do? Nothing. A dead person could do absolutely nothing to help themselves. Everything you experienced in salvation came as a response to what God has already done. For you. Right? So if you've repented, you placed your faith and your trust in the Savior, it's because God loved you first. Scriptures are clear on that. It's because God drew you to himself. It's because God regenerated you. It's because he breathed new life and he commanded you, come forth, just like Jesus did with his friend Lazarus. And since God did all the work, he's the one who receives the glory in your story when you share it. And when you and I begin to see the Lord as he is, we're going to come to realize that the gospel is not merely what Jesus has done for us. The gospel is who Jesus Christ is. And by him alone, through grace alone, you'll be able to live according to the scriptures alone so that at the end of the day and at the end of our days, we're going to be able to say together, Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Amen? Will you pray with me? Father God, just like that, uh, that old hymn says, to God be the glory, great things you have done. So loved ye the world that you gave us your son. And Father, we thank you. We thank you that you would just send your son into this world to reveal his glory. We ask, Lord, that you would open hearts and open minds in this place to see that glory, Lord, that more and more we would acknowledge not only what you have done, but who you are. And we thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.